Welcome to the Product Boss Podcast, where we help product-based businesses grow their sales and improve their strategies. Hey, everyone. I want to introduce you to my co-host and biz bestie, Mina Kunlo-Sita, an Amazon guru that has built a multi-six-figure product-based business. In introducing the other half of the product boss, Jacqueline Snyder, she has helped launch and grow over 500 fashion apparel and accessory brands, even one of her own. And together, we share our inventory of secret weapons that will help you dig deep and do the work it takes. Are you ready? Let's build together. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Product Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Snyder, with my talented co-host, Mina Kunlo-Sitep. Hey, Mina. Hey, Jacqueline. So we are excited, thrilled, elated, all of those words to have a very special guest on today. We have Susie Weiss-Fishman, the co-founder of OPI, and she has written a book called I'm Not Really a Waitress, How One Woman Took Over the Beauty Industry, One Color at a Time. Welcome to the podcast, Susie. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on today. Mina and I, we, um, the book has just been released, so we were able to get our hands on some of the first copies and have literally highlighted, dog-eared the entire, pretty much every other page, I feel like, right? <laughs> and we would even voxer each other and message each other, have you read this part yet? <laughs> So as product entrepreneurs, thank you for writing something that is a biography of your life. Plus, there are so many um, nuggets and words of advice in here for people who are entrepreneurial and especially in the product realm. So we wanted to jump in and have you start with just telling us a little bit about you and where you come from because your story, uh, you you were born in Hungary, right? Yes. So your story of how you made it from Hungary to Los Angeles is incredible. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our listeners. Of course. I was born in Hungary and we left Hungary, my parents and my sister. And first we emigrated to Israel in 1966. And I lived there for three years and came to the United States and specifically to New York in 1969. So, you know, a little bit of a difficult journey, learning languages twice, uh, school, friends. But I feel it really made me a stronger person. Sometimes when you have some adversity in in life, it makes you even stronger and uh, more resilient to things that may come your way. Mm -hmm. And I mean resilient because your family are survivors of the Holocaust, right? And they survived and ended up in Hungary, which is communist Hungary. And yes, my mom is uh, survived Auschwitz and my, my dad also survived the Holocaust. And it's a miracle that I'm here, that they survived. They went back to Hungary after the war. They married. And uh, we lived under communism until we we left. We were one of the lucky ones. And uh, really, every day I consider myself extremely lucky and for all the sacrifices that my parents did for my sister and I to have the life that we have today. Absolutely. And so I wanted to share something that you spoke about, um, about growing up in a communist country. Something that you said was that you always saw the women having jobs. Um, they were the doctors and right. They were the doctors and the lawyers. And you never grew up thinking that women couldn't be all the things based on where you came from. So I think that didn't, that didn't stop your ability as a woman when you eventually immigrated to America to think that you could 
run businesses and be a mother at the same time? Absolutely. And so many times people ask me about that. Oh, how do you feel about, you know, women as being equal or having opportunities? And I always said, why you ask me those questions? <laughs> you know, I never grew up in that sense. I mean, women were, as I said in my book, were always the doctors, the lawyers, the engineer, and sadly men were mostly drinking or, uh, or drunk, as I mentioned. So I never felt that that held me back at any time in my career, in my schooling, the job, the business, anything I've done, I always felt that I was just as equal to a man and could do the same or even better in certain instances. That was something that you brought into the OPI culture. The culture of giving and the culture of being on the same level, I think is incredible because as you said, there is an always an open door policy and a um, invitation for people to always bring their ideas, whether they were women or a lab tech. I always say I cannot emphasize uh, enough how important the culture of a company is. And really the OPI culture was, was like a big family, but having an open door policy, respecting your employees and allowing your employees to express and bring ideas is what makes a company. You know, I always said, uh, George and I, you know, we're great uh, leaders and entrepreneurs, but it is the entire, the people that made the company so successful. And from the person who took out the garbage to the marketing, to the creative team, to the sales team, everybody was part of the OPI, as I call it, the OPI journey. You know, I always respected people coming into my office, bringing ideas. It was kind of that idea lab where we bounced ideas. And then when everybody left my office, people knew what to do to, um, to bring that to fruition, to bring that product to the market. So again, the culture of a company and allowing people to, I think for an entrepreneur, it was probably the most difficult thing for me to, to learn is to delegate. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because when you when you start, you do everything from placing orders to cleaning up in the evening. I mean, literally from A to Z. And to realize that some people can do better than I in certain things was was not easy. But once you get over that hump, it helps you to grow your company and it helps you to do things that you should be doing and uh, and not you know, micromanaging every single thing. And I really think one of my best assets is not to be, not to micromanage, but to allow people to grow and to execute the visions that I had. Mm. So you brought up George. So George Schaefer is the co-founder of OPI with you. And so I think a lot of people don't know what OPI stands for. So would you mind telling us how, what OPI was and what it, how, what it became? So um, just uh, briefly, we started in the dental supply business. And in the early 80s, we realized that the uh, artificial nail extensions called acrylics were extremely popular. And it's the same uh, chemistry as making dentures. 
So we literally started with something called the rubber band special. That was our big marketing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is to take three bottles, and that was the primer, which is the adhesive agent, the liquid and the powder, and tie it with the rubber band and called it the rubber band special. And uh, we dropped it off at every salon on Ventura Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And I asked the nail technicians to try it, and then I'll be back in two weeks. And when I went back and asked their opinions, they loved it. They said, where can we buy some more? And that's really how OPI started in the professional salon business uh, with uh, the products used for nail enhancements, specifically acrylics. So it was called Auditorium Products Incorporated, and then you quickly changed it to OPI for when it, when it went to the nail technicians. Again, we had zero idea of what the <laughs> company should be called. So we said Auditorium Products Incorporated, probably too long and too difficult to pronounce even for myself. Um, so we just took the initials OPI. And the, at the first trade show that we did, we wore these huge buttons, what's OPI? Because everybody asked in the show, what's OPI? So we just wore these huge red uh, buttons that we made up for ourselves. What's OPI? And uh, actually, those three letters uh, ignited such curiosity to what this company, this new brand was, that it worked to our advantage. So we teach our listeners basically that you need to fill a need, right? And so what you saw is you had a product that there was a need being met, but you didn't realize, right? Your customer, the end customer was a bit different. So you took this idea and formulated it into, like you said, the rubber band special. And then you went out and you, uh, what is it? Ground, ground warrior. You basically went and met with people and asked for the feedback. And I think that's just so important for everyone to think about because even though a lot of business isn't done in person anymore in a lot of ways, unless you're going to trade shows, you still have the ability to educate your customers on a new product at market and how you just put a rubber band around it. So, so many people get stuck on that packaging, but you're like, let's just rubber band it and see if it works and get the feedback. So there's just so many nuggets of that in here that I think are important for people to know that it's okay to, to, you came out with an exceptional product, but it wasn't the final, final, like perfectly packaged product. Absolutely. Just go out. If you believe in something, uh, go out and try it. And I can want to stress the importance of relationships and how important it was to form a relationship with the professional nail technician and to get that feedback, it really gave us to go to the next step and to the next level. Yes, I know today we do everything through social media and the importance of social media and all the different platforms that we can engage, uh, whether it's a professional or the end consumer or everybody in between. But if there's an opportunity to get personal feedback I think it's so important and to form a relationship with somebody, whatever that product that you may be launching is extremely, extremely important. And you stayed really specific with the rubber band special. And what made, what prompted you to move from that, focusing on the singular type of product, right, to moving into the next thing, which were other tools for nail technicians? Well, we realized that in order to, to do a uh, nail, you need you, this was not enough. And we really wanted the nail technician to be able to find all the products that she needed to do the nail enhancements at OPI. 
because we didn't want her to go to another company to buy a brush or a form or a file. We wanted to keep her focused on OPI and so that she can find all the products that she needs to complete a service with OPI products. Amazing. Um, there is one part that I found so fascinating is that you put, though I was certainly the most reserved of the three of us, I was fearless when it came to promoting OPI. I'd cold call any editor and urge them to try OPI. And of course, I'd follow up by sending them samples. So there's so many entrepreneurs that are introverts and are um, reserved. But how did you overcome that as far as um, personality-wise and feeling like you would be okay to cold call people? I'm still reserved, believe it or not. <laughs> this is not easy. I mean, writing a book, I kind of have to open myself. But I was really passionate about the products. And I realized as a, as a business person that if I stayed in my office and, you know, just did not open up myself and did not venture out and be more aggressive and be more uh, forward, it's never going to happen because nobody can do it as good as you in, in the sense when you start a company, nobody believes in the product more than you do. Nobody's more passionate about the product than you are. So it was extremely important. And once you, you make that first step, it isn't really too bad. It, the second step is easier and the third one is a breeze. <laughs> so you, um, the chapters in here are basically inspired by all the nail polishes. So there's a chapter called To Can Do It If You Try. Um, and in here, it starts to talk about you launching from being uh, from the products that you were doing for the nail technicians into actually getting into the nail lacquers. So could you tell us about that transition, another major sort of move for your business that took you to more or less what consumers know of you guys now of today with being, you know, the first lady of colors. So OPI was growing rapidly in the professional uh, salon business. But what George and I realized that it was important to get, go to the consumer directly. We wanted the consumer to ask for OPI when she went into a salon and to gain the loyalty of the consumer. We looked at the category of nail lacquer and we realized that it wasn't fun, sexy, aspirational. It was just a number and a color. And we really rebranded the category. Today, we, you would call us disruptors. It's a new language. Uh, but at that time, we didn't know the word disruption. We just said we needed to, to do something to this category. And the two things that we most love at OPI is to eat and to travel. <laughs> Eating is very important. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of, if you notice, a lot of the nail color names are after food. So we came up with the destination collections where we really took the consumer traveling the globe with us. And that made it extremely personal to her. I mean, nail color was something that she put on her nails, on her toes, and through the names, which became such a huge part of the brand's DNA, it became personal. She was asking for these. She was looking forward to the new collections, the new colors, the new names. So, you know, I would go into a salon and watch uh, women pick up a bottle. They looked at the shade, but they also looked at the name. They were both so important. So it made it fun, aspirational, sexy, but most of all, very personal to the consumer. So she would ask for OPI by name. And that was a huge huge jump that OPI took 
where we really went into the consumer world globally. And you think about some of, if you all remember some of the first times that maybe you saw OPI, you started getting your nails done and the bottle design was very specific. So you've, you created the bottle and the handle and the brush to be just exceptional and work well in the nail technician's hands, but then also the logo on the outside so people could recognize the bottle, the logo, and then you had to flip it over to see the color. Um, so I don't know, Mina, if, I don't know because I I grew up in the Valley where this all started. So I wonder if you were in the nail salons I was getting my nails done in. Yeah, they're just as popular here for sure. And I remember constantly seeing OPI. It's a brand that's become truly an icon. And I remember flipping it over and looking at the colors. I think, D- Jacqueline, didn't you give birth with an OPI? So I was saying, like, I know pinking, uh, pinking of you was all through high school, all the dances, and then my wedding color. And I don't remember what I did for my labors, but I was told to get your na- toenails done because you're going to look at your feet. And then um, Lincoln Park After Dark is like my color when I'm going to be fashionista, when I'm going to fashion shows, I get that. And I'm wearing, I'm not really a waitress right now, but definitely, and it is, I go and I choose the color. I choose, I only go to OPI. So um, it is something that I think what you did as the disruptor is you also had people relate huge life experiences to the colors and to have that that affection for it and, and to really, like you said, like pin big life events on back to a nail polish or nail lacquer. Like how, when else does that happen? What else are we thinking about when we're getting married? Maybe the designer of my wedding dress and what I wore on my nails. <laughs> I would love for you to share with our listeners the lipstick debacle of, I think it was maybe the 80s. So a lot of our listeners come out with products and they oftentimes feel the need to quickly make other products. So they're doing really well at something, let's say making soaps. They all of a sudden feel like they need to jump into body oils or some other product. And we always tell them stay focused, like double down on the stuff that's doing well, um, especially when you're starting to get into other formulations and things like that. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about what happened with lipstick? Absolutely. So I agree with you 100% that do what you do well, especially in the beginning, until perhaps the company is a little bit more mature and you're financially more stable before you venture into some new products. So at OPI, we did, there was this uh, huge trend of matching lips and nails. So we said, oh, great way to expand uh, product expansion is to get into lip color. The only thing is we didn't do our research. We didn't know enough about lipstick formulations. And what I say is getting those little sweat marks on the lipsticks in the summer where you kind of roll up the lipstick in the case and you said, oh my God, what is that disease on the lipstick? Uh, which was horrible. So again, launching some new products as far as weather, shipments, all those things need to be uh, very much considered because they can cause uh, problems, which again, we didn't do our homework. Uh, It was a total disaster. And it was also at, at a time when OPI was hurt financially because of this. I mean, a million lipsticks were, we had to be thrown out, which means cases, the formulation, the labor, all that that went into preparing this uh, to launch was canceled. I mean, we quickly recovered because the products were so popular and sales were, were strong. And of course, we refocused on what, as you said, what you know best, what we knew best. 
which was everything to do with nails, nail lacquer, and the professional side of the salon business, and getting into pedicure, so hands and feet. Again, I'm not against growing and launching into new products as long as you really do a homework to make sure that you're not hurt and don't do it right away in the beginning. Make sure your company is mature and you're financially able to, should you get some uh, problems, that you will not get hurt too much. That didn't shut your business down. You guys were able to recover. It was a hit, but that you, you recovered because you had such a strong product line, the core of the business. Exactly. So have a strong base before you venture into something new. Words to live by, everybody. It is. <laughs> um, so, Susie, can you get a little bit into your partnership with George? I always encourage people to have a partner. It's you know, I always say they're only twenty four hours in a in a day. It's it's great to have somebody that you can bounce ideas from. But I think the reason that our partnership worked so well is because each of us did our own thing. I mean, we trusted each other to do the best. George was very much into what I call infrastructure, machinery, uh, you know, filling lines. Uh, expansion as far as the buildings, things like that. And I was more in tune to the marketing and creative side. Sometimes we didn't speak because we were both so busy, but we each knew what was going on. And uh, I think that is extremely important. Again, what we discussed in the beginning is how you delegate and to make sure that some people can do things better. But George did so much better the things that I didn't do and I did so much better the things that I knew best that he didn't do. So we didn't get into each other's ways. We we discussed it, but each of us went our own ways and did what we know best. And I think that's the best way for partnerships to succeed. And in the book, you actually say two people who can do the same thing very well, maybe one too many, but two people using their respective skills and working together for a common cause have the strength of many. So I think it's it's because we're a partnership too. And Mina and I have done a lot of personality tests and we are actually the exact opposite um, in ways that we work in ways that we work. So we're able to complement each other for the things that what our strengths are and maybe what our not so strengths are. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying that. Um, so because a lot of times people don't believe in partners, but I feel like even if you don't have a partner, if you're able to bring on an assistant or um, somebody who can complement or like you said, take over some of the hours in the day, it's helpful. Would you mind telling us a little bit about Harris, your other I would say maybe your life partner. <laughs> so Harris um, was the amazing PR guru. And as I start my book, uh, I didn't know what PR was. <laughs> um, he, I mean, again, uh, Harris and I had one thing, we had a sense of urgency, which I always encourage young people today to have a sense of urgency to do things. I mean, I would say, Harris, did you get the call? Did we get the appointment? Did we get the meeting? <laughs> and it was then, now, now, now. It wasn't tomorrow. It wasn't two days from now. It was today. It was now. And I think that was such a huge part of our success. Uh, and like Harris told me, every day is a PR opportunity. When I was flying on an airplane and I was going into the market, when I was speaking to the cashier, and when somebody complimented my nails or complimented the color, that meant start a conversation. It's a PR opportunity to promote the OPI brand. 
And uh, Harris and I just had this amazing, uh, you know, personal, but more importantly, an amazing uh, business relationship. And then um, a lot of the times you would travel together and you both have that importance of family. And I just love that about your story, how strong your family ties are. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about that too? I mean, the, the guilt never ceased to be when I had to take a trip and your kids are saying, mom, please don't go. And you say bye. <laughs> and then for the rest of the, the plane ride, they forgot it as soon as I walked out the door. But of course, the guilt stays with you. And uh, I mean, Harris and I were the same. We, we were crazy, two crazy people who did, you know, in a day or two and then rushed back. I mean, we, did, we would go to Europe for five days every day. Every night we would fly to the next city, do the PR event, get, go to the next city so we can be home by Friday night. And uh, I mean, for me, um, the importance of family, I said I love what I did, but number one, my number one passion is my family and the most important, my husband and my two kids. So it, it was something that I did. Again, uh, not everybody, but for me, that's how it worked best is to be home for the weekend always and to have Shabbat dinner with my family. We were saying before the call, actually, before you jumped on that, we wish we had someone like you when we were starting our businesses, because I think a new thing, you were, you had this business for 37 years, right? So you, yes. you're one of the first, um, not one of the, well, I mean, you have a, a brand that you've built and now there's a lot of women entering this world. They, they're leaving corporate. They have the ability to make way more money on their own, building their own businesses than to stay, let's say in a job. But the thing that we struggle with as mothers and business owners, and now we're, we both own two businesses is how to be everywhere at once and when, and when to, and where to ask for help. Right. So having someone clean our house or do our laundry if we can afford that so that we can spend our time with our kids or going, Mina and I meet all over the, <laughs> we say we kind of have an affair because we meet at hotels around the country for <laughs> business meetings, <laughs> but um, that we're able to meet each other quickly. We get in, we get out, we get home to our kids. And so having that, knowing that, that you can balance it as best as possible and then still build a business and still have a very strong intact family, I think is just so valuable for everyone to hear. I agree with you and help is extremely uh, important. I was very fortunate to have my family to help, my parents, my sister. Uh, I couldn't have done it without them, to be honest with you. And uh, I encourage uh, you know, other women to kind of find that balance of trying to get help if you can, as you mentioned. And it's okay to feel guilty. It's okay to have anxieties when you leave your kids as long as you know you hurry home it will all be better and uh you know some of that me time i didn't have but that was a choice i made and it was fine for me so um let's talk a little bit about what really expanded the brand globally um as something and i think this is something that we talk about we teach on visibility and and how to make connections so um, people talk about influencers or micro influencers about co-branding and so much of that you talk about in this. So, um, for example, you guys did, you collaborated with Coca-Cola, you collaborated with Pirates of the Caribbean and Alice in the Wonderland, Alice in Wonderland movie. Um, there's so many Ford motor cars. So could you tell our listeners about how, you know, they have this product and they're doing well within their space and then sort of how you expanded it, uh, by working with these huge other other brands and companies? Yes, yeah, so I always looked at OPI as a lifestyle brand. 
you know, I, I never considered it just nail polish. From the beginning, it was so much more. It was, like I said, the period at the end of a sentence. It was that accent. It was that finishing your, uh, your outfit or how you look. And uh, for me, lifestyle meant I wanted OPI to be when you were watching your favorite movie, drinking your favorite soft drink, listening to your favorite artist, driving your favorite Ford Motor Company. I always said, I, you know, I always used to tell my team, think out of the box. Let's think smart. Let's be smart today. Let's be different. And that you know, that thinking started this whole collaborations. And being in Hollywood, of course, the first thing was to approach a movie studio. And the first movie was really uh, Legally Blonde with Reese Witherspoon because it was nails. I mean, in the movie, it's perfect. there was such a huge nail scene. And after that was Alice in Wonderland. And then the studios were calling OPI and presenting all the movies they would tell us what's coming in the next year or next two years and to choose what would be uh, ideal or inspirational for a collection and again for celebrities and I always chose celebrities that nails were very important to them we never photoshopped nails on any of our celebrities these were genuine real collaborations with celebrities and each one of them starting with Katy Perry they loved their nails each time they uh they wanted to part of the uh, color selection, with, you know, how the process went. So that was amazing. And then I even branched out to corporate, you know, Ford Motor Company, Coca-Cola. I mean, those these are huge American iconic brands. And to be able to, for, a, you know, a small nail color company to be able to collaborate with them was an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah, that's so exciting to come out with all those brands and, and it be, it becomes part of pop culture and what we all aspire to be, right? We look at Katy Perry and she has this such glamorous life and the song she sings about and everything, it, it becomes part of our life too. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we touch, as you mentioned, pop culture and we touched it in so many different ways. I remember telling the story when I was in London presenting to Barbara Broccoli for the Bond franchise and each of the brands that are in the movie had to present to her. And it was Pepsi or Coca-Cola, I should say, and Range Rover or Omega Watch. And there I was OPI. And um, the, other, the rest of the presenters, I mean, they could have been working for another brand the week before. You know, the passion in... Uh, when I presented and how uh, I viewed the collaboration and the integration into the movie really made OPI into this, this brand that everybody wanted to be part of their collaboration because we offered the audience of women. For example, with the Bond franchise, you know, it was men, it was sex, it was a car chase, but they wanted the women uh, uh, to focus on on the women audience and OPI could bring that audience to the movie. And those were the things that really changed how these movie uh, studios or these uh, companies viewed OPI as what you can deliver. And I think that's important for any brand that's uh, launching or some new brands of how they can improve uh, other companies' kind of of out-of-the-box focus. 
So the Susie's pick, so you would come out with 12 nail lacquer colors and maybe you'd be presenting the collection in January and February. And I think Harris and you decided that it would be a good idea to, to pull out Susie's picks. So some colors that, that you could talk about again to the press. So you're able to take the same collection and re-promote it and keep that sale of, the, of that collection going to kind of add more um, fuel to the fire and, and so that you didn't have to always innovate and create new colors monthly. Like in fashion, people have to do things monthly. Um, so I think that that, and that worked really well because you still do Susie's picks to this day, right? Yes, absolutely. I, it's very, very important that when we launched the collection and we presented 12 shades, how do we come two weeks later and, you know, as you said, pick out Susie's picks and present those uh, shades again to kind of renew the interest in the collection and then come again. And, you know, I was the person who uh, people could relate to Susie. It's like, who is Susie? People knew I was the one who created the colors. I was one of the people who helped name the shades. So I was that genuine person who created this and to the editors and to the influencers and everybody, this was extremely important. So again, 12 shades, representing it, presenting it again, pulling out different sections of a collection to make it more important as the time was went on before the next collection came out. And then one thing that you said was OPI created an instant classic by connecting to women on an emotional level, by making nail color personal and relevant to women's lives. And this is the kicker, by elevating nail color from a product to an experience. So again, connecting it to you, connecting it to these faraway destinations and foods, and then making it the experience of, of cross-branding and cross-promoting, that it did become this experience as part of everybody's lives. And I just that our listeners should know that because thinking about how they could take their singular product and make it into an experience. Absolutely an experience and such a way to self-express. There's nothing better for women to, to self-express, uh, to show personality than through their color. You can be wearing green one day and red the next and pink the next. It's, uh, it's that instant gratification, uh, affordable luxury, easy to change. Uh, you can go to a salon and have it done professionally, or you can change your color at home uh, and, and show your personality, your, change your mood, your look and your outlook, as I mentioned in the book. All those things amazingly through nail color. And then you do speak on how entrepreneurism is not for everybody. I think everybody ha- can be an entrepreneur, However, you must have that drive and passion to keep it because there are many setbacks along the way. And as long as you, I always say, you can make decisions, you can be patient, you have the resilience, the drive, the passion, I think you can be an entrepreneur. But along the way, you must always continue to stay focused on your vision, on your product, on what you want to launch of. What was it that make you want to do this? You know, sometimes at night you have to kind of sit and refocus yourself. Is why am I doing this? What is it that I really want to achieve? I want I'm launching a new product, I'm launching a new idea. You know, any one of those things that makes an entrepreneur the entrepreneur to to be is that you really focus and carry out your vision. So Susie, what would you say um, would be your 
I know there's a lot you can give as advice, but what advice would you love to leave our product entrepreneurs? You know, people ask me, what was my greatest success? I said, I made decision. I've been patient. I have a, I'm very disciplined. I have a, a drive and a focus um, and patience. Patience is the virtue that uh, is a must for successful people. And many times I say, don't jump around. You know, even if you see competition around you, it's okay. You need to know uh, when you're launching a product, what's your competition, what's your market size, what is your vision for one year, two years, you know, how much your market can grow, uh, what can you achieve, but be patient one step at a time. So is there anything in your journey that you think that you would have taken back? Nothing. I've been extremely lucky and grateful every day. Again, there were many bumps in the road, but that's okay. It just makes you more resilient and make you want to do it even harder. And I'll bet you're asked this, but would you be able to tell us maybe one of your favorite colors? Oh my God. It's like asking me what's my favorite child. (laughs) It's all of them. Of course, I'm not really a waitress is one of my favorite shades because it really tells women that you can be anything you want to be. Not, you know, you can be a waitress and that's perfectly fine or you can be anything you want to be in the world. Which I love. But I'm from LA and I always said people are slashers in LA where it's like, I'm a waiter, but I'm a writer. I'm a waiter, but I'm, so I love that I'm not really a waitress. That's the story behind it, that you, you, are, an, you are in pursuit of being whatever you want to be. Absolutely. And it comes from the Hollywood collection. So what, you know, everybody says, like you said, I'm not really a waitress. I'm a writer. I'm an actor, an actress. And, and yes, you can be all those things. We actually have a very special giveaway for our listeners so they can enter to win um, their own copy of I'm Not Really a Waitress. So if you all want to follow her on Instagram, and we are going to put it in our show notes, it's First Lady of Colors, and we'll put that in the show notes, and we will put a little prompt to how to enter that giveaway. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, this has been great fun, and I appreciate this. This episode is over, but it doesn't have to end. Head over to our Facebook group, search for the Product Boss Biz Community, or the link is also in the show notes. Come connect with other product bosses just like you. We'll see you in there. If you love the Product Boss Podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, share, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Until next time, product bosses, let's make it happen.